The stores are full of Halloween candy and decorations that suggest a rather pagan celebration. But this is distinctly Catholic time of year with a fascinating history and delightful traditions just waiting to be enjoyed with our families. Today, we are blessed to have best-selling author Kendra Tierney here to help us celebrate the holy in Halloween. This will be fun. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Hello and welcome. I'm Lisa Maladnik, your host. Today, Kendra Tierney is here to teach us how to celebrate the holy in Halloween. Kendra Tierney lives in an It's a Wonderful Lifestyle fixer-upper in the wilds of unincorporated Los Angeles County with her husband, their 10 kids aged 2 to 19, and some chickens. Kendra is a retired pilot and flight instructor who is putting her English degree to use as a homeschool mom and writer about all things Catholic. Her passion is liturgical living, what began quietly in their home with their children as a way to introduce the lives of the saints and the beautiful history and tradition of our Catholic faith, now reaches hundreds of thousands of people all over the world. Through her blog, CatholicAllYear.com, social media accounts, YouTube videos, and many books, including the Catholic All Year Compendium, Liturgical Living for Real Life. She shares how obscure Catholic traditions have helped the Tierneys form a strong family culture and Catholic identity and have fun doing it. We have two previous episodes with Kendra in the show notes on celebrating the octave of Christmas and Epiphany and also on celebrating the Triduum. We have another show with Kendra coming for Advent, so do look for those. Welcome back to the program, Kendra. Thanks so much for having me, Lisa. Great to be here. (laughs) Yeah, great to see you. It's neat to be in New York and be able to talk with you in California. Thank you, (laughs) Lord, for (laughs) being able to consecrate this technology to our uses. Yeah, so it's a funny time of year, right? We're seeing Halloween candy and decorations and stuff for several weeks now. It starts really early. But uh, yeah, (laughs) so step us into the origins of this very Catholic season. Yeah, so there, I, I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation out there about Halloween. And I think that a lot of well-meaning Catholics, you know, are concerned if we should be celebrating Halloween at all. And, uh, you know, no celebrations are mandatory to anybody. But, you know, I always say if anybody's going to celebrate Halloween, it should be Catholics. It's our holiday. Um, so Halloween is part of, uh, of what we call Hallowtide, which is All Hallows Eve, All, uh, Saints Day and All Souls Day. Those three days, which is, you know, October 31st, November 1st and November 2nd. And these are sort of the launch of, uh, of the month of November in which we really focus on praying for the Holy Souls in Purgatory which is a really, really important practice and really sort of fundamental for Catholics um, and, and what we believe about eternal life and what we believe about heaven and, uh, and, and purgatory and our loved ones who've passed away. So uh, the even 
I, I was actually looking through uh, through my book, the through the Catholic Outer Compendium, uh, before we spoke to make sure that I wasn't going to contradict myself. But I am going to contradict myself because <laughs> I actually have more in, more newer information than I had when I wrote the book um, a few years back. Uh, I say in the book that you know that that the Catholic that the focus on you know ghosts and skulls and spookiness is all seated in firmly in Catholic tradition in pray that, that the word ghost refers to spirits and and so it was really that focus was on praying for the dead but i say that you know that there's not really a connection for catholics with trick-or-treating and jack-o'-lanterns and things like that that those were just sort of secular Celtic traditions but in my continuing research on <laughs> stuff like this i was looking into the history of soul cakes because i was Looking in, I, I was uh, creating a recipe for that that gets included with the printable resources that I send out to Catholic All Your members. So there's a recipe for soul cakes in there, and soul cakes are very tasty. They're sort of like a cross between a cookie and a scone, and mm -hmm. they're traditionally given out during Hallow Tide during those three days. And you give them to somebody in exchange for their prayers for your deceased loved ones. And it turns out that that is where the the tradition of trick or treating comes from is that people would uh people in homes would make soul cakes and solars uh, adults and children at that time would go door to door i guess like now would go door to door and and knock on the door and would offer their prayers for the deceased loved ones of the household in exchange for treats these soul cakes um, and that they would bring, it wasn't pumpkins because pumpkins are a new world, uh, a, a new world vegetable, but they would carve turnips <laughs> and they'd carve a little face on the turnip and put a candle inside and carry those with them as a lantern, but also to symbolize a soul trapped in purgatory. So to sort of, you know, and I don't think that it was necessarily a 100% pious tradition. I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure there was a little <laughs> bit of, you know, just a, of, of raucous carrying on like there is now. But what a beautiful thought that when we, I, I'm so excited to, to mention this to my kids now that when we go and knock on those doors, you know, we always teach them to say trick or treat and to say thank you afterwards. But as we're walking down the driveway now, we can say a little prayer for the deceased loved ones of the people in that family. Wow. What a great way and a very like uh, honestly historical way to celebrate Halloween for Catholics. Wow, I love that. I love that. That idea of a soul in purgatory, it just gives me shivers. And as you said, what an incredible time of year to talk to our kids about this, that to touch on the communion of saints, this eternal family that we just never stop loving and being in relationship. It's just the whole thing is so satisfying. <laughs> right, absolutely. And so, you know, we, we celebrate All Hallows Eve, which is the Eve of All Souls Day. And then on, uh, all, we uh, sorry, the Eve of All Saints Day. And I think a lot of us, when we have these, you know, our homeschool group, we are so fortunate to have a, we do a big All Saints Day celebration where the kids dress up as saints and we do a little guessing game where they, you know, they, they come up on stage and they ask questions, you know, they get three, uh, three clues and then the kids in the audience guess, but that sort of associates it with the, with the canonized saints, the saints that we, that we know well. 
But that's not really the point of All Saints Day. The point of All Saints Day is to celebrate all the saints who aren't canonized, the saints that we don't know their names. So it's great to celebrate those, and we will definitely continue doing it. But um, but really, All Saints Day is that day to celebrate the the people that we have good reason to hope are in heaven, but are not officially canonized by the Catholic Church. So if you had a very holy grandma who was, you know, always, it was a daily community getting thrown holy water at you as you, as you <laughs> ran by, All Saints Day is her feast day. And if you lost, a, you know, if, if you lost a baby or, a, you know, a baptized child who, uh, then, then this All, All Saints Day is your child's feast day. Um, and, and so that, that's really what, what all saints day is to celebrate our saints that, that, you know, that maybe not everybody knows about, but that, but that we cherish. And obviously it's, you know, it's an exercise in hope. We don't know for sure if they haven't been proclaimed as such by the Catholic church, but we have reason to hope. And, uh, and, and so that's what all saints day is for. And then on uh, uh, the next day on all souls day is when we celebrate when we, uh, we have that day to observe the people that we're not so sure about the people that we hope have made it to purgatory, which, you know, it, it, by all rights is, is going to be most of us, right. Where we, we hope we're going to get to purgatory and, and we hope that we will, you know, in God's mercy end up in, in purgatory awaiting the prayers of, um, uh, of the faithful that, that we leave behind. So you, I don't know if you can see behind me, I have this banner, uh, I, I was going to ask you about that. That's really yes. neat. Yeah. So uh, we have. I have this uh, subscription box that I that uh, that is full of all my favorite stuff for various um, seasons. So this was in the fall ordinary time box. So it says requiescant in pace. I, I hung it up here behind me for today, but it'll it'll go down uh, into our living room and be part of our you know slightly spooky Halloween decorations because you know it's got. Uh, <laughs> It's got some skulls and stuff on it. Um, so it'll be part of our Halloween decorations, but then I'll leave it up for the entire month of November. And that will remind us every time we walk into uh, into the living room to pray for the holy souls because it is, you know, it's one of the, it's, it's one of the acts of mercy that, uh, it, it, and it's, it's, uh, it is to pray for the living and the dead. And it's, um, Correct me if I'm wrong. I, it, is it? It's one of the corporal. Is it? It's one of the corporal. One of the spiritual acts of mercy. It's In a, any case, a spiritual it's work of, the, of mercy yeah. is to pray it's for. It's, the, it's part it, of, it's I think, burying the, the yeah. dead. Yeah. So it's sort of it, it's a it, it's a responsibility that we have to pray for the to pray for the dead and we especially do so in November. So I really like having it be part of our decor all month. And then the other thing we do uh, specifically uh, is, is to. Um, is to write the names of our deceased loved ones on a candle. Um, I have, I've always just done it on, you know, one of those uh, eight inch white glass jar candles that you can get, you know, for a dollar at the dollar store. Um, and the fancier one this year that I designed and made um, it. Uh, yeah. And it has, has incense in it and it's beeswax. Um oh. <laughs> And it has the eternal rest prayer on it, but also little lines. So we can write, the names of our deceased loved ones. And then we'll burn whether it's this one or, you know, it, it, before when we would just do it on the pillar, on the 
glass candle. We write the names of our loved ones on the candle, and then we burn the candle every night at dinner. And it's just, it's a really sort of tactile way to remember to pray um, for for our loved ones that we hope to see again in heaven. Wow. You know, one of my favorite things, too, about November and praying for the Holy Souls is that the Catechism tells us that when we pray for them, we enable them to pray for us. It's a spiritual exchange of goods, to put it in the words of the Church, that we open a door. We reopen our relationship in a really special way because the Holy Souls are holy. They're now incapable of sinning, and they're moving ever closer to the presence of God, to the beatific vision. So, their prayers for us are very powerful. They're grateful for our prayers, and they never stop praying for us until we enter heaven. And so they become powerful allies as well. Yeah, I love, and we mindfully uh, in our family pray specifically for um, for souls who have no one else to pray for them. And I, I love that idea that there are, you know, that there are souls in purgatory who've been there for who knows how long that don't have people actively praying for them. And we can be those people. And that's, that's something that's really moving for kids when you tell them like, here's something that you can do that no one else can do. Um, and, and it's a really sort of, you know, put, put, your beliefs into action sort of sort of feeling for kids to explain to them, you know, this is what we believe about the afterlife. This is what we believe about our eternal souls. This is what we believe about, you know, about heaven and about purgatory. And we believe, you know, it's our goal to get to heaven and we'll get to meet these people there that we, you know, we trundled ourselves off to the cemetery to pray during the Holy Souls indulgence we got some people to heaven, you know, that's, that's an amazing, what an amazing thing to have done in a day. Like what could be, you know, it's, it's never convenient to, you know, to get a bunch of kids out of the house and, and, you know, over to the cemetery to pray. But when you think about it in those terms, what could be more important than I could be doing that day? Nothing, nothing. And, and if I, I, I feel like if I do other that if I prioritize anything else, you know, what kind of lesson am I, am I teaching my kids? They need to see, no, this is so important. Wow. It's, and you know, kids love, this is why uh, things like, you know, Harry Potter and, and other things that are more occulty have had such an attraction for our kids. And I'm not here to, to argue whether or not there's any good in those books or not. Um, that's a whole other topic. But the point is just that we are, are attracted to the supernatural. And there's a reason for that, that the darkness and the light, the battle of good and evil, and our ability to fight for each other's souls, to be able to make those acts of mercy for each other, you know, once we've gone beyond that does fascinate children. There's so much about our faith that if we just tapped into it with confidence and not shy away from it, our kids would be a lot more excited about their faith. Well, yeah, I mean, and it, it is, and, uh, and especially once you've done it a few times, my kids really look forward to it. It is, it is a family tradition. My kids, you know, expect that we're going to spend the first week in November going to the cemetery every day and praying for the souls of the dead. We also, just as we're, we don't make a, a, you know, a, a, a stop, but, but whenever we pass by a cemetery, we always um, stop our conversation, turn off the radio. We always pray the eternal rest prayer. And we are fortunate to have a, a cemetery really close to, um, to our house. And I sort of alternate, you know, I, I go one way to get there and the other way to get back so that we pass, a, so we pass a church 
so that we can uh, make uh, an, an act of spiritual communion. And we pass the cemetery on the way back so we can pray the eternal rest prayer. And, you know, my kids just expect that we are going to be mindful every time we drive by Jesus. And we're going to be mindful every time we drive by a cemetery where, you know, where these people are waiting for us to help them. Oh, that's great. Um, I'll include links to the spiritual communion prayer and the eternal rest prayers. Um, you can let me know if you have something specific on those in your on your blog, and we'll link that up in the show notes. Thank you so much. What a delightful way to just incorporate that awareness and that love in your children to become a, a prayerful community and be still connected to the beloved dead. And how reassuring for them that they won't be forgotten themselves. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, if I want my kids to pray for me after I'm gone, which I definitely do, <laughs> um, you know, good to show them what a priority it is, um, you know, for me. Yeah, just just beautiful. What kinds of liturgical opportunities are going to show up at this time of the year that we might want to be aware of? Uh, so you mean like feast days coming up in uh, in November? Well, I know some people will celebrate special masses and things like that. I know for all saints or all souls. Um, anything in particular that your family likes to do? Yeah. Uh, the, so the um, you, we do the all all soul. Uh, sorry, the All Saints Day pageant through our homeschool group, and the kids get to dress up as a saint, which is so great. Um, and then and, and on All Souls Day, uh, there are there are actually two different indulgences that that you can attempt uh, on on All Souls Day. You know, one or the other to get uh, a um, to to get a plenary indulgence applicable to the holy souls. You can either pray in a church or you can pray in a cemetery. I know not everybody is as fortunate as we are to have a cemetery a couple of blocks down the street. Um, so if you can't get to a cemetery. Uh, on All Souls Day itself, you can um, you can say the prayers, uh, which I would have to look up exactly what they are. I'm pretty sure it's just any prayer plus um, communion, confession, uh, saying a prayer for the Pope, and reciting one of the approved creeds. But somebody should you should check on that for yourself. Um, <laughs> okay. But yeah, but you can do it in a church, and then any of the eight days uh, of the uh, um, of the the first week in November, uh, are, uh, you can, you can gain a plenary indulgence for the Holy souls by praying in a cemetery. Uh, and then, uh, I mentioned the soul cakes. That's our, uh, we on usually on all souls day, we'll meet some friends at the cemetery. Uh, and I will make a big batch of soul cakes and we'll, you know, I'll pass them out and the kids go and trade them with each other and ask them to pray for a certain, um, uh, you know, a certain person. And then we'll go around and just, uh, I'll either cut flowers from home or buy a, um, you know, a bunch of flowers at the grocery store and the kids get to go around and put a, a flower on the grave, uh, uh, you know, on, on graves around and, and just take a moment to pray for that person just in case he or she needs it. Wow. And, you know, it's, I think that, you know, 20 years ago, I would have thought that that sounded like a really nuts thing to do with a bunch of kids. <laughs> but I just can't tell you what a great and, and meaningful and fun tradition it has become for us. And it really takes away the, you know, the, the, the stigma of it. And it takes away the, the weirdness of it when, when you think about what it really means and what we're really doing. Yeah, truly. 
And um, it also occurs to me, you know, bringing all your children in and doing it together, that they're experiencing it a little differently every year because developmentally they're making leaps of understanding and self-awareness and all of that, asking new questions. And so what you're doing there is cultivating the, the repetitious element for the little ones where they just love the, the kind of remembered routine or, yes, we do this together, all the way up to your older teens who are probably thinking about their own mortality as well as the people who have gone ahead of them and really thinking more deeply, but coming together in this family tradition, what a beautiful touchstone for them. That, that's such a good point. And that's really part of the beauty of the liturgical calendar and why the church gives it to us as this framework for, for prayer and, and pious activities is, is just that reason that, that it falls on us differently at different ages and at different seasons of life. And as we have different experiences, uh, it, you know, in other aspects of our life, we really experience the liturgical year differently. And, um, and, and then, you know, another nice thing about it is, you know what, if this is not the year for you to traipse your kids out to the cemetery for whatever reason, it'll happen again next year. And that's, it, you know, that's what's nice is in the case of, you know, illness or pregnancy or, you know, that if you just can't do it this year, next year will, you know, is there waiting for you. So that's, you know, there is so much beauty in the cyclical nature of it. Yeah, it's almost like as the seasons change, and we don't ever tire of springtime, right? We know, oh, here comes spring again. Let's do spring again. (laughs) It's not like that, is it? There's a freshness to it every time because we're different as we celebrate each year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What are some particular favorites with the Tierneys? Are there foods or I know that you do the cemeteries and and the beautiful prayers. Is there anything else that you want to share that's particular to your family? So there's another really fun recipe (laughs) that we do for All Souls Day that I found. It's a it's a Southern Italian recipe and it's called Eggs in Purgatory. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it really is just a big, uh, you know, a big skillet full of either a uh, spicy tomato sauce, or I actually like to make it with just the uh, fresh salsa you can get in the refrigerated section. You heat it up to boiling and you just crack, you make a little well in it and you crack eggs in there and then it cooks, the eggs cook in the sauce and then you scoop <laughs> them out and it's just... It's, uh, I love stuff like that for just creating conversation around the dinner table, right? That, and, and creating memories. And so we sit there and, uh, you know, and the, the kids are like, you know, okay, I, you know, I got an egg. I need, I, I'm going to get some purgatory and put it on my, <laughs> put it on my piggy. We serve it either on tortillas or on a piece of bread or something, but it works for brunch. It works for dinner. Um, and it just stuff like that. It just, it's fun and it creates it creates habits and it creates memories and it, you know, and it's something to talk about and laugh over and, and, you know, it helps create a, a, that, that strong family culture. So um, I think most of our recipes are, are all souls day related. And then, you know, for all saints day, uh, when we have, we've sometimes thrown a party for it and I'll just do various different uh, recipes that are associated with different feast days throughout the year. And then actually on Halloween, I should mention, because it is the vigil of a very important solemnity that All All Saints Day is an important solemnity, it actually is traditionally a day of fasting, which, you know, you don't think about that Christmas Eve and Halloween are actually, they're they're vigils to important feasts, and they they were historically mandatory fasting days. 
So <laughs> um, we we abstain from meat on uh, on those days and uh, and until and we abstain from treats until sunset, which I know is uh, in California. Most people wait until sundown to trigger treat. I know that when we lived in Chicago, people did it all afternoon. So mm-hmm. it, it's sort of regional, I think. But <laughs> the tradition here works with with how I like to sort of view it as a vigil. But so my, uh, in order to, to give us a fun sort of meat, a fun meat free meal for the day, I make what we call spooky baked macaroni and cheese, which is <laughs> just regular baked macaroni and cheese. But after you take it out of the oven, <laughs> you cut a little ghost out of a slice of cheese and you put it on top and then it melts Ooh. a little bit on the hot, on the hot macaroni and cheese. And then it. it is very spooky. There you go. I love it. And that's a great segue right into like the decorations, because as you mentioned, skeletons, things like that, thinking about death and, and everything, the four last things. How does your family decorate? What does it look like? Yeah, I think that it's just that, that I love reclaiming things. I like going into a party store and and being able to discard the stuff that does not seem right for us and to be able to reclaim the stuff that that is skulls that is that that is part of this memento mori tradition that that the you know skull decorations were in many people's houses are in a lot of uh, saint portraits you'll see skulls there and that's because we are encouraged to think about our own mortality and halloween is the perfect day to do that um and and so yeah we put up skulls we put up ghosts and we talk about how this is just sort of a symbol for the souls that uh it, you know that that we are thinking about this month um and and so we and gravestones things like that can definitely be a part of of a of, of catholic decoration there are going to be things that you're going to see at the party store you're like yeah no we don't want that but even <laughs> Even when it, it might be, it might feel like too much of a stretch for some people, but but really, even the mon- the traditional sort of monster stories are really seated in Catholic tradition and Catholic belief. When you look at vampires, right? They drink blood to have immortal. No, to, to live forever. Well, so do we, but we do it right, you know? <laughs> um, and so it, it's, if, if you tell your kids the stories of these monsters, it's a way to talk about how they get it a little bit right and a little bit wrong and what we actually believe. And wouldn't it be terrible to, to you know, wouldn't it be a great tragedy to live forever stuck on earth? And, and that's what these, you know, these original uh, monster stories are tragedies, right? They're not, mm. the original vampire stories aren't to be celebrated for, for living eternally. It was, you know, it, it, it was, that was the tragedy of their lives is that they wouldn't be able to die and go to heaven. Mm. Um, and, you know, zombies is the story of the, of a body, you know, rising out of a, a dead body, rising out of the ground. Well, if you ever say the, you know, if you say the creed at church on Sunday, you say that you believe that your body will rise again, you know, at, at the second coming. So, uh, you know, hopefully not zombie style, <laughs> but you know, it's uh, these stories are a way to talk about what Catholics actually believe and 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 to to catechize ourselves and our kids. And I don't think it's something that we have to be scared of. 
uh, of misleading or, or confusing our kids if we are introducing our kids to, to, to feast days throughout the year. And mm-hmm. they're learning about the saints. And so Halloween is not the highlight of my kids' year, right? It, it's a fun day, um, but it's not, you know, it's not the only thing we celebrate. It's not the only thing we celebrate in October. You know, we're also, we, we're going to do something fun for Halloween. We're also going to be do something fun for the Feast of, of John Paul II on, on the 23rd. You know, so we we don't hold it up as this, you know, most important of all days. It's just one of many days that we do something fun for. Oh, lovely. Just to, to have the richness and the enjoyment. And I love the element of play. I think, you know, one of the things I like about the Chosen series, I don't love everything about it, but I, I love the playfulness of the Christ figure. And I think that that's true to life. I think that when we have joy and when we know where we're headed and we understand the underlying spiritual realities, we can't help but be playful and creative. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. Any final thoughts to leave us with, Kendra? No, I mean, I, I think that was great. This was, uh, this was fun. It's, it's just something that I feel, I, you know, I just, I, I feel so strongly that, you know, just what you said, that there is a, that, that there is a requirement in, in Catholic homes for joy and to not live our lives, um, <clears throat> you know, in, in a, in a general spirit of fear and shutting things out that, you know, we look for the good. Um, we, we look for the good and we, we take what we can, uh, from, from secular society and we reclaim what we should from, from Catholic culture. And I think that, uh, Hallowtide is, is a really great opportunity for us to do that. Yeah. And I love that you also inserted the thought, if it's not this year, it can be next year. And the other in between is, which you're often emphasizing, pick one thing to try and see what, you know, what works with your family, kind of create your own traditions. Kendra, thanks a million. We've got links to your book, Catholic All Year Compendium, um, where to buy it, where to find you on your blog and social media, and also the previous two episodes. And we're really looking forward to having you back for our discussion of Advent very soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, everybody. Stay tuned for our short feature coming right up. Hi, I'm Dave Palmer, an instructor with Homeschool Connections. I teach a class called An Introduction to the Summa Theologia. I also have written a book called St. Thomas Aquinas for Everyone, and I host a Facebook group page, uh, which is called Away a Day, where we attempt to find uh, creatures or ways each day uh, that kind of show how God manifests himself in our everyday activities and things that we observe. And so I'm pretty big on St. Thomas Aquinas, and that's why I'm very grateful to be able to teach you these lessons, uh, relatively brief lessons, uh, here on this podcast about the Summa Theologia and St. Thomas Aquinas. So let's get right to it. And if you remember, the last um, the, the last one that we did was about the five proofs for the existence of God. And I won't go over these again, but just uh, as a reminder, these are the five proofs for God's existence. And so if you were convinced, as we should be, that God does in fact exist, I think the next logical thing to ask is, well, what is God like? Who is God? What is God? And interestingly, the question, who is God, is very different than 
what is God, and I'll prove it this way, when I say, who is this, you would probably immediately say, oh, that's Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Um, You know, that's, you know, I know who that is, right? But if I said, what is this, you might be stumped and say, well, it's a human being, it's a priest, it's a bishop, it's a... Uh, hopefully one day a canonized saint, you know, so the who and the what are different answers altogether. So in this uh, video, we're going to talk about what is God, and I'm going to give seven of his attributes. This is not an exhaustive list of his attributes, but these are seven of the ones that Thomas Aquinas teaches in order in the Summa as we will go through them. And interestingly, the very first attribute that St. Thomas Aquinas speaks about uh, in regard to God in the Summa Theologia is that God is simple. Now, most of us would not think of God as being simple. We would think of him as being rather complex in most cases, but when we think of simplicity, we might think of a butterfly or a baby or a sunset or or something, you know, that, that seems peaceful and gentle and that kind of thing. But Thomas Aquinas says, no, God is absolutely simple. And the interesting thing about God's simplicity is that it's one of the hardest things in the Summa to explain, which seems ironic, but I'm just going to real quickly tell you the ways in which St. Thomas Aquinas teaches that God is perfectly simple, is that first of all, he has no body, no parts, no genus, no species, right? Easy enough. And also, his essence and his existence and his nature and his suppositum, which means that his suppositum is an individual in a particular species or nature, okay? So I'm a suppositum, you're a suppositum, but we share human nature. Uh, I'm I'm Dave, and you're who you are, right? Or we could have a 100 pencils, and we have 100 supposita, but one nature, so to speak, of, you know, pencilness, right? Uh, composites are posterior to their parts, but God is the first being, okay? We we are a composite of body and soul. God doesn't have a body, doesn't have a soul, and so he's not, he's not a composite. There's nothing that came together. Uh, composites have a cause, but God doesn't. He's the, remember, he's the first cause, the uncaused cause. No potentiality in God, but rather pure act. Nothing happens to God. He is, he just is, right? And he is the, the cause of all things. All right, now that you thoroughly, thoroughly, hopefully understand God's simplicity, we move on to God's perfection. God is absolutely perfect. And what do we mean by this? He's the first principle. Uh, he's not material, but in the order of efficient cause, which uh, must be most perfect. For just as matter as such is merely potential, an agent as such is in a state of actuality. Hence, the first act of principle must be most actual. Okay, so... God has no potentiality. He created all things. He's the first cause. He's the first mover, most most actual, and therefore, he also is most perfect as well. Now, that might be hard to understand, but Thomas then, in this section of talking about God's attributes, says, okay, well, let me help you out this way. Let me ask you, are the perfection of all things in God? Because we can certainly relate to you know, a perfect friend or a perfect sunset or a perfect baby or a perfect, you know, a day out in the hammock, relaxing. And Thomas says, all created perfections are in God. Hence, he is spoken of as universally perfect because he lacks not any excellence which may be found in any genus. First, because whatever perfection exists in effect must also be found in the efficient cause. 
So anything that we experience that has a certain degree of perfection about it is first in God. Okay, so that helps us to understand God because anything that we like, anything that we find perfect, well, that's participating in God. He goes on uh, next, we're about to talk about the goodness of God, as God is perfectly good, but he pauses here and says, does goodness differ from being? Okay, so Thomas concludes that if something has being, if it is, then it's good, all right, without exception. Scorpions and wasps and mosquitoes and snakes, those are all good. Why? Because they have being. Is every being good? Every being that is not God is God's creature. Now, every creature of God is good. That changes the way we look at things, doesn't it? And then he goes on furthermore to say, does goodness have the aspect of a final cause? By this, he means since we're all drawn to goodness, you know, our desire, our will is drawn to goodness, does that have an aspect of a final cause? Is that is that our purpose? Is that our meaning? Is that like what we're ultimately seeking is goodness? Now, the reason he does this is because then he's going to say, you know what? God's third attribute is goodness. He is good. What does that mean? That means that all these things that we experience here in the world that are good really is just our desire for God. And that's why this is so important for everybody to understand. To be good belongs preeminently to God, for a thing is good according to its desirableness. Now, everything seeks after its own perfection, and the perfection and form of an effect consists in a certain likeness to the agent, since every agent makes its like, and hence the agent itself is desirable and has the nature of good. So when we say God is good all the time, all the time God is good, that's a very important thing to say because that relates to everything. The hot fudge sundae or the good night's sleep or, you know, your spouse or your kids or, you know, what have you, anything, all right? The next one is that God is infinite. That means he is beyond, you know, he isn't, he isn't bound up in, in space, Right, and let me let me explain what he means by this. Plato and Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosophers, spent a lot of time talking about form and matter. Matter is the physical aspect of something. Form is what defines it, what it is. Right, uh, a, a bird. The form is birdness. The material. Well, speaking of birds, let me show you a bird. Here's a bird. <laughs> uh, it's a particular bird, a suppositum of a bird. It, it has the nature of birdness, I mean, the essence of birdness and the nature of a bird, but it's just this one bird in space and time. And what Thomas is going to explain here is that matter, in a way, makes finite, is made finite by form and form by matter. Matter, indeed, is made finite by form inasmuch as matter, before it receives any form, is in potentiality to many forms, but on receiving a form is terminated by that one, okay? So I am one person in you know with one intellectual soul one body you know matter but i'm i'm limited in space god doesn't have any of those limitations because he doesn't have form he doesn't have matter there's no composite so he's everywhere okay god is everywhere he is infinite that's what that means god is immutable which means that doesn't change for in any way our world is filled with change the seasons the weather the traffic changes but uh, not God. Okay, so three different ways to explain immutability. Uh, first, because there is some first being whom we call God, and that this first being must be pure act without the admixture of any potentiality. 
for the reason that absolutely potentiality is posterior to act. Now, everything which is in any way changed is in some way in potentiality, but God has no potentiality, so he's immutable. Okay, the second one talks about anything that changes remains as it was in part and passes away in part, thus in everything which is moved, there is some kind of composition to be found. But we've already proved that God has no body, he has no matter, he has no form, he can't be moved, so therefore there can be no change. And finally, everything which moved acquires something by its movement and attains to what it had not attained previously, right? So if something's moving, it's trying to reach a greater state of perfection, and therefore it wouldn't be perfect. But so you see how all these attributes kind of fit together. The simplicity and the immutability and the perfection, the goodness, all are related. Okay, so we move on to God is eternal. All right, with us, you know, everything in our life is is in time. You know, we are watching the time. Races are based on time. Our sports games, most of them are based on time. Time is always passing by and always elapsing. But um, with God, there, there's no time, okay? So the idea of eternity follows immutability as the idea of time follows movement. Hence, as God is supremely immutable, it supremely belongs to him to be eternal. Now, nor is he eternal only, but he is his own eternity, okay? God isn't just eternal, he is eternity, okay? He is outside of time, and outside of timeness is God, okay? I know it's kind of hard to get your, your to kind of wrap your head around. Uh, finally, um, God is one. There's only one God, he is unity. The first way he explains this is he talks about Socrates, the ancient Greek philosopher, and says, you know, there was one Socrates, one suppositum, but he had human nature. The human nature part of Socrates was communicable to billions and billions of people because we all share human nature. But that individuality of Socrates is only him. But with God, that suppositum and that nature are all the same, okay? So he is one, okay, that's the first way. Hopefully that makes sense. And then also from the infinity of his perfection, God, God comprehends in himself the whole perfection of being. If then many gods existed, they would necessarily differ from each other, and something therefore would belong to one which did not belong to the other. And if this were a privation, one of them would not be absolutely perfect. If you have two gods, one of them would have to be a little different than the other, and then one of them would be a little better than the other. And so why, why would you have the second God that's inferior to the other God, right? If they're, if they're exactly the same in every regard, well, there's only one, right? They're, they're precisely the same. And also it is shown from the unity of the world for all things that exist are seen to be ordained to each other since some serve others, but things that are diverse do not harmonize in the same order unless they are ordered uh, thereto by one. Something is ordering this whole universe, right? And that that it's 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 one intellect, one mind, teleology. Remember the fifth proof of the existence of God that governs the world. <clears throat> it's clear that this is, this isn't a committee. This is one being that's doing this, right? Okay, so hopefully those made sense. Those are the seven attributes of God. Do you have them memorized? I hope you do. Here they are: simple, perfect, good, infinite, immutable, eternal, and one. Those are the seven attributes of God. Thank you very much for watching. I hope you found this interesting, and we'll have another one of these lessons next month. God bless you. Hmm, 
that's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com. Be sure to subscribe to Homeschooling Saints and leave us an honest review. God bless you and thank you for joining us.